You know, I don't, I don't know if anyone is noticing this, but I feel like someone may be that we've been, we've been praying those psalms of lament pretty often lately, and it is a, it is a time to pray lament psalms um, for sure in our, in our world right now. But I just, I wanted to point out that they're also just the next psalm up. Uh, I'm not choosing these psalms in any special way. It's just this is what's next in the psalms, and that's significant to notice because just, just like I just prayed, God knows us. And he knows our world, and he's given us these laments to pray. The Psalms are his songbook for the church, his prayer book for the church. And, and it just shows us. I mean, one-third of the Psalms are lament Psalms. And it just shows us that this, it's important for us to be able to learn this language of lament and to pray those prayers. Um, maybe unfamiliar to some of you to, to pray those prayers. I know it was for me growing up, but uh, they're a gift to us to help us move through sorrow and put our hope in Christ. And so... Uh, Joey, thank you for leading us through that time, um, ministered to my heart, and, and the songs that we just sang together. Uh, what, what a hope we have, church. Well, in just a matter of months, I mean, the world really has become a much more frightening place, hasn't it? I mean, just, I think four months ago, we, we didn't talk about um, pandemics, and, and we weren't seeing protests like we've seen, and, and, and while politics has always been with us, they've just, they've just ramped up quite a few notches, haven't they? I mean, now, now more than ever, here, here's what, what I'm wondering, what I'm asking myself constantly, is what is the church's place in all of this? What is our relationship to these things? What is our relationship to this world? What, what does it mean to be the church in the world right now? What does it mean to be the church in the world? What does that look like? I'm reading the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many of you know who that is. He's a German theologian and pastor during Hitler's rise to power in the 1930s in Nazi Germany. And Bonhoeffer was, was a man that stood alone during his time. We look back on him in history and, and we wonder why was not everyone else with him. But in, in his time, he was alone standing with courage on the word of God ended up dying in a concentration camp as he stood for the word and his convictions. And I'm reading his biography, and, and here's something that he said as he was contemplating for himself in Nazi Germany, what is the church's role in society? What is the church's role in our nation in a time like this? And, and he meditated on Christ, and he said that Jesus Christ was, he, he called him the man for others, the man for others. Now, Jesus is, was the man for others. Well, what he means by that is Jesus lived not for himself. He came to this world, and he, and he loved the world, and he ministered to this world, and he died for the sins of this world, so that all who believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. He was the man for others. So how does that inform our understanding of who we are as the church? Who, if Jesus came to the world to be the man for others, then, then who is the church in the world? Well, the church is the body of Jesus Christ. So if he was the man for others, then we are called to be this as well. We are called to be the church for the world. What, what, what is the church's role in the world? We are the church for the world. We are the body of Christ sent into the world. We are called to love the world. We are called to proclaim the hope of the gospel to this world. And just like Jesus sacrificed himself for the salvation of the world, we proclaim this news and shine this light to the world at any cost to ourselves. This is, this is our calling in this world. 
We are here, church, and not in heaven right now in glory. We are here still for this world. But if we're going to fulfill this calling effectively, we need to realize something. We, we, we need to realize that we cannot be a light to the world if we are like the world. We cannot shine as light in this world if we live like the world lives. We cannot serve the world if our lives are the same as the world's. We cannot walk as witnesses to Jesus Christ if we walk as the world walks. You can open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians just want to give a little bit of a, a review of where we've been so far in this series. We, we, we are in chapter 4 right now, but if we look back at this book, in chapters 1 through 3, what is, what is Ephesians all about? What is, what is Paul writing this letter about? In chapters 1 through 3, what we see is that the book of Ephesians is all about the saving realities of the grace of God and how by his grace, in his love, in his sovereignty, God is saving for himself sinners to be part of his one new people, to show in this world now that one day everything will be made one in Christ. Everything will be reconciled in Jesus Christ. And the church is the evidence of that. Sinners saved by grace, brought together in one new humanity, Jew and Gentile, one body, showing forth the glory and wisdom and grace and power of God as a testimony to the fact that one day, all things will be reconciled in Jesus Christ. All things will be centered in him. And so, believers, we were dead in sin. We were following the course of this world. We were children of wrath. But, but God saved us by his grace. He adopted us into his family. He made us alive with Christ. He gave us eternal hope. And then he did that to each one of us, but then brought us together into a new family. To be a new people. We, we are the church. We are not just individuals who've been saved, but we are the body of Christ. This is all due to the grace of God. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, after, after explaining all these amazing realities of God's grace and what he's doing to bring us together into Christ as his new people, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So in light of the grace of God, in light of the love of God, in light of the, the sacrifice of Christ and the forgiveness of sins and, and all that God has done for you, therefore... Because he's done all this, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. What is that calling? It's the calling to be his new people who live for his glory. To be his church living for his glory. Walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Let your life live up to that calling. Be the church. Be his people. Be the people of God in the world giving glory to God for his grace. And in chapters 4, 5, and 6, that's what Paul is giving instructions. How do you do that? How, how, do you, how do we walk worthy of this calling? And for the last few weeks, we were looking at how we walk in unity together. And we walk using our gifts to build each other up. And now we are entering a new section. And this is how it begins in verse 17, chapter 4. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. That's the instruction this morning. Do not walk like the Gentiles walk. Now, this is a church of Gentiles predominantly. So it's, 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 it's a church where, where many of these people were and are Gentiles. When he uses this word Gentiles, he's referring to the unbelieving world. He's referring to those who are still living in their unbelief, in their idolatry, in their sin. He's saying, you have been called out of that to be a part of God's new people. You must no longer walk like the world walks. 
And he says it with, with the utmost seriousness. He testifies in the Lord to add weight to this call. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. This is how we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We do not walk any longer like we used to walk. We do not walk like the world walks. We walk as new creations. We walk as the new people that God has made us to be. You know, I think that Christianity, I guess you could say Christianity has a uh, reputation of, uh, of saying it's all about what we should not do. And of course, so much more than that. Christianity calls us to, to lives of love and good works and worship. But this morning, that is the idea. Do not walk like the Gentiles walk. Do not live like the world lives. So we're going to read this passage and then just think about everything that Paul says as he unfolds on this instruction to not walk as the world walks. We're going to answer three questions this morning. We're going to answer the question, how does the world walk? He says, don't walk like the world walks. So he's, he's going to say, Here, here's how the world walks. How does the world walk? Why shouldn't we walk that way? Why should we not live like the world lives? And then how should we walk instead? How does the world walk? Why shouldn't we walk that way? And how should we walk instead? So let's read the passage, Ephesians 4, 17-24, and then we'll answer those three questions together. Now this I say in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." So three questions. The first question is, how does the world walk? The instruction is, do not walk like the world walks anymore. So how does the world walk? Let's look at verse 17. He says, now this I say in testifying the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. In the futility of their minds. Notice that Paul doesn't immediately describe the behavior of the Gentile world. First and foremost, he describes the thinking of the world. How do they walk? They walk in the futility of their minds. He's referring to the ineffectiveness of the world's thinking. Saying, the world tries to apply its mind to life, and it's futile. It doesn't work. It's ineffective. If you put a thousand pound weight in front of me, I saw the record for this was like 1,100 pounds, so I figured... You know, I better stay at 1,000. I, I can maybe do 900. But, but if you put a 1,000-pound weight in front of me and told me to deadlift it, I, any efforts I make would be futile. I could not deadlift 1,000 pounds. I'd be ineffective. I would not be up to the task. And, and, and you could just imagine me trying. It's not going to work. Give, give you guys a fun image to think about there. The world applies their minds to life, to, to, to how, how do we live effective lives? How do we live lives that, that are meaningful and matter and, 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 and work. And just like I am completely unable to lift that thousand pounds, they are completely unable, futile, ineffective at living 
the life that God has called us to live. Now, this doesn't mean unbelievers are in any way less intellectual. I mean, I mean, uh, uh, unbelievers are brilliant in some ways. I mean, think about someone like Stephen Hawking, a, an atheist, but a brilliant mind. It's not saying that, that there, there's, there's no intellectual capacity at all, but it's talking about wisdom and the ineffectiveness in the task of living life the way God designed us to live. This is the way the world, world walks, in futility of their minds. Now, now let's, let's see what Paul does here next. In verse 18, he says, They're darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. So Paul continues to describe their thinking, right? They're darkened in their understanding. It's a metaphor I can't see. I'm in the dark when I'm trying to think about these things. I'm ignorant, the ignorance that is in them. The world does not know what they need to know. But what is the underlying issue here? Is it knowledge? Is the underlying issue that they just need more knowledge? Well, look what he says. Why are they ignorant? Paul says their ignorance is due to their hardness of heart. Due to their hardness of heart. This is so important to see, church. That they are responsible for their ignorance. The world is responsible for its darkened understanding because it is the result of a hard-heartedness to the truth that God gives. The world sees the truth of God and rejects it and pushes it away and says, I want to live in darkness. I want to live in ignorance. Paul explains this further in Romans 1. He says in Romans 1 that God in creation, in, in, just the, in the world, has made himself known to all people everywhere. He says it's plain to all people that there is a God who is powerful and glorious that we are accountable to. Every, everyone knows this, except he says that all people suppress this truth in unrighteousness. They're hard to it. They don't want to accept that. They don't want to believe that they are accountable to a God who lives over them and has authority over their lives. And so, just like a beach ball keeps coming up from under the water, and you keep trying to push it down, that's what unbelievers are doing. They're pushing the truth of God back down. They do not want anything to do with it. They're suppressing it in unrighteousness. They're hard-hearted. And this is what is underlying their ignorance. They're futile in their thinking because they're hard in their hearts. Now, how does this manifest itself in their lives? Look at verse 19. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Notice the connection Paul makes with hard-heartedness again. He says they've become callous. Uh, Wes, Ryan, Chris, you guys know when you're playing guitar, you're beginning to learn guitar, that it hurts your fingers at first. You feel the pain of those strains uh, on your fingertips. But over time, as you practice, as you play, you form calluses, and you no longer feel that pain. Paul uses that picture of a calloused heart, a heart that over time no longer is feeling, no longer feels the conviction of conscience over sin because they've just continued in the same way for so long. They've just become hard and, and surrounded in such a way that they don't feel anymore. They have no spiritual sensitivity left. This is what happens to an unbeliever's heart as they continue res resisting the Lord. It just gets harder and harder. And it's from this callous, unfeeling, hard heart that he says the world has given themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. What, what he's picturing is, is people that are giving themselves over to do what feels best to them. Just to, to pursue their, their sinful cravings, their sinful lusts, without any sense of whether it's right or wrong. To just do any sort of impurity because it's what they think is going to satisfy them. And then, and then you notice that it doesn't satisfy them. 
They're greedy for more and more. Why? Because they're never satisfied. They just continue to go back to it, but they're never there. That, that's the futility of their thinking, right? What, what, what's the definition of, I'm losing the word, of some, insanity is when you do the same thing over and over again with, with, and expect different results. That's what the world does. They keep going back to these sins over and over again, but they, they're never satisfied. They just keep going back for more and more. This, this is Paul's picture of the world. It, it is a scathing picture, isn't it? And I want you to notice, he says, you must no longer walk like this. So it's not, it's not like we never did. This was us. This was us, church. This is who we were, apart from the grace of God. Well, what is the outcome of all this in the lives of an unbeliever? He says in verse 18, they are alienated from the life of God. They're alienated from the life of God. This is just another way of saying what we saw in Ephesians 2 about ourselves. They're dead in sin. They're dead in their sin. They are separated from the life of of their creator God. By hardening their hearts to the revelation of God, the world's thinking becomes futile, and because of their futile thinking, the world gives themselves over to sin. Because of their sin, they're alienated from God. And this is how the world lives their lives. This is how the world walks. This is how we all once walked before God saved us by his grace. This is how Paul says we must not walk. Before we go forward, some of you might be listening this morning, and, and as you hear this, by God's grace, you are realizing that God's word is, is describing you. God's word is describing your life right now. You realize, I have been hard-hearted to the truth of God. I have suppressed the truth of God. And I've sought to live life my own way, in my own wisdom. And I've pursued the same sins over and over again. Even though I'm never satisfied, I keep going back to those sins. And, and, and I have no relationship with, with the living God. You realize God's word is, God's word is showing you your heart. And the good news of the gospel, the good news of Ephesians, of the word of God, is that God sent his son to bear the judgment for your sins by dying on the cross for you. And this morning he calls you to, to turn back, to repent of your sins, and to soften your heart, and to surrender your life to him, and put your faith in him, and receive his forgiveness. So before we move forward, I, I just look at this description of the world. If, if you see this, you say, that, that's me. The word of God is accurately describing my life and my heart. Then know that the word of God also calls you to salvation. The word of God calls you to repent and believe in Jesus, be forgiven of your sins, be saved and follow him. I want to call you to do that this morning. It's how the world walks. Now, second question, why shouldn't we walk this way? Why shouldn't we as the church walk like this? And I think here's the logic behind this question. For someone who has experienced the grace of God, for someone who has received forgiveness of sins, the line of thinking might be this. If I've been saved by grace and I've been forgiven of all my sins, past, present, and future, then why does it matter how I live anymore? Why can't I live in sin? Jesus has already borne the penalty for my sin. I'm going to be forgiven, right? Now that I'm under grace, why does it matter how I live? Now, we might expect Paul to say, well, if you do that, you won't be saved. That's not what he says. He does that in other places. It's not wrong. But his answer here strikes at something even deeper. Look at verse 20. We're just going to meditate right now on one phrase in this passage. He says in verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Why shouldn't we walk the way the world walks? Because that's not the way that you learned Christ. That's Paul's answer. 
The expression learned Christ is completely unique. There's really no expression like it in the Bible or even it's in, in, in ancient Greek literature. We talk about learning about someone or learning a subject, but here Paul says we learn a person. We learn Christ. And, and what he's getting at is the relational knowledge that believers have of Christ. We, we, we not only know about him, we have actually come to know him. We've come to know Jesus. We've learned Christ. And Paul's train of thought is we must not walk the way the world walks because we didn't come to know Christ that way. Think about it. Let me just ask you, church, did you learn Christ by listening to your heart? We, we love that song, right? But it's, it's a terrible message. Did you learn Christ by just following your heart? Did your heart just lead you to Jesus? No. No, you were hard-hearted. You didn't want anything to do with him. Did you learn Christ by leaning on your own wisdom and thinking? Were you just thinking one day, twiddling your thumbs under an apple tree? And I think Jesus is the answer. No. No, you didn't learn Christ just by thinking your way toward him. Did you learn Christ by by pursuing your sinful passions and cravings and and then at some point just just realize, oh, look, it's Christ. No, these things did not lead you to him. You didn't learn Christ by walking the way the world walked. And of course we know this. How do we learn Christ? We learned Christ by someone coming to us and proclaiming the gospel to us. We learned Christ by being confronted from the outside, but from outside of us, someone came with the word of God and called us to repent of our sins and to believe in him and to follow him. It was a confrontation with the word of God coming from the outside into our hearts. This is how we learned Christ. The gospel came to us. And I think what Paul's getting at is this. If walking in sin isn't the way that we learned Christ, then walking in sin is not the way we will know him more. If if you didn't learn Christ by a sinful lifestyle, then why would you continue in a sinful lifestyle? And and what he's striking at is, is the deepest joy of the Christian life. What he's striking at is, is, is that knowing Jesus himself is, is the drive of the Christian's heart. It's everything. Now, if you, if you don't care about knowing Christ more, if you'd rather walk the way the world walks, if sin is, is more attractive to you than Jesus, then, then probably you've never actually learned Christ. Probably you've, you've never tasted his goodness. You don't actually know him in any personal way, if sin has just this, this continual attraction to you, you, you've not come to know him yet, because if you have come to know him, if you've truly learned Christ, then you know that knowing Christ is the driving joy of the Christian life. We cannot know him more while simultaneously walking like the world walks. They are opposite directions. You cannot walk in increasing knowledge of Jesus and walk in sin. You cannot do both. And if you, as a believer, have learned Christ, you know that there's no comparable joy in this life. There's no sin that could hold up next to Jesus. There's, no, there's nothing in this world that compares to Jesus. So why would you walk like the world walks if you've learned Christ? It's not going to lead you there. It's not going to lead you to know him. It's, it's, it's going to lead you away from the joy that you have in Jesus, not toward him. I want to pause here and just ask you to reflect this morning on this question. Christian, is the driving joy of your life this morning knowing Christ more? 
just, just right here, right now, where you are, looking at your life, looking at your heart, looking at your patterns, or do you say, yes, right now, I, I, my heart is fixed on the joy of just knowing Jesus. You know, when you get married, you're simply entranced by your spouse. No, nothing brings you more joy on your wedding day than the thought of, of loving your spouse for the rest of your life. And then what happens is life gets busy and responsibilities pile up and time together becomes harder to find. And while you're doing everything you need to do to, to keep marriage and life afloat, it's all too easy to be distracted from that one main thing that brought you together in the first place, knowing and loving your spouse. It, it gets pushed to the fringes, not because you don't love your spouse, but you just, it's not the center anymore. It's not, it's not what's on your mind anymore. You're so busy with other things, and this can happen in the Christian life. We can get so busy seeking to live the Christian life, seeking to, to do ministry, seeking to serve others, that we forget what's at the very heart of it. What drew us to Christ in the first place is, is, is the joy of Christ himself. And so I want to call you this morning just to recover. If, if, if you've lost it in any sense, recover this morning. The driving joy of the Christian life is knowing Jesus more. No sin can match the pleasures that are held out to us in Jesus. Everything else is lost compared to the surpassing joy of knowing Jesus. This is why you came to him. You came to Christ because he was the reward. He was the treasure. Is he your treasure this morning? Come back to Christ as your treasure if you have strayed from that. That's why we shouldn't walk as the world walks, because that's not how we learned Christ. and That's not how we're going to know Christ more. Finally, how should we walk instead? Okay, we don't want to walk like that because we want to know Christ more, and that's, that's antithetical to knowing him more. So how should we walk instead? Let's look at the rest of the passage. He says, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Now, I want you to see exactly what Paul's saying in these verses and, and, and just the, the flow of thought Paul has because if we can grasp this point, it's, it's, it's just hugely important for the way that we approach the Christian life. So, so just follow me here. First, in verse 21, I want you to see that Paul is still, he's still referring back to how we learned Christ originally. He says, he says that's not how you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him. So how did we learn Christ? Well, we heard about him and were taught in him. Someone came to us, like we said, came to us with the gospel, told us about Jesus, taught us what it means to follow Jesus. And that, that happened when we, when we were saved. And then in verses 22 and 24, these, these three phrases, put off, be renewed, put on. I want you to notice that these are not actually phrased as commands, but they're descriptions of what we learned when we came to Christ. It says, this is what you were taught when you came to Christ. This is what you were taught when you learned Christ. You were taught in that moment at conversion to put off your old self, to be renewed, and to put on the new self. So he's actually describing our conversion here. He's describing what happened to us when we were saved. We, we, we heard of Jesus, and we were taught, if you want to follow Jesus, you need to put off your old self. We were called in that moment to repentance. We were called to deny ourselves. We were called to let our old life go and to turn away from who we were. And we were called to be made new, to let the Spirit of God make us new creations, to be born again. We were called to, to, to be, surrender ourselves to the Lord's work. 
And then we were called to go a new direction. We were called to put on the new self. We were called to follow Christ. We were called to, to live for him. And here's why I'm, I'm pointing this out to you, that, that this, this is what we were taught when we came to Christ. Because what it shows us is, is that the Christian life is not something different than when we came to Christ. It's, it's just more of the same. You see, Paul's point is this. If this is how you came to Christ, then this is also how you continue to walk with Christ. If this is how you learned Christ, then this is also how you will know Christ more. These things have already definitively happened for you, believer, but now you continue to pursue this direction. Paul says it this way in Colossians 2.6, as clear as day. Therefore, as you received Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. As you received him, walk in him. Well, how did you receive him? I received him through repentance and faith. And following, walk in him that way. Repentance and faith and following. And so how do we walk? We, we walk out the Christian life the same way we started the Christian life. Just as we definitively put off our old selves, and now every day we must put off our old self. Martin Luther's first of his 95 theses was that repentance is not just the beginning of the Christian life. Repentance is the whole Christian life. It's all of it. We are a repenting people. We are constantly putting off our old self. Just as Jesus said in one instance, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, definitively deny yourself, take your cross and follow me. In another instance, he said, if you want to follow me, you deny yourself daily. Take up your cross daily and follow me. It's both and. We, we definitively put off our old self when we came to Christ. Now, every day, repent. Put off your old self. Turn away from who you used to be. In a similar way, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. When we came to Christ, God made us new. He didn't just improve us. He didn't just add some features. If you were playing Madden, he didn't just add some points to certain skills, right? No, he made us new. He made us new creations. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Just as that happened when we were saved, so now be renewed by the spirit of your mind. Be renewed every day. We must continue. How, how did it happen, church? How did God make us new? Again, by being confronted with the gospel. Confronted with the word of God. So how are we renewed? By being confronted with the gospel. Confronted with the word of God. Every day we must be renewed in the spirit of our minds, letting the word of God have its way over us. We, we must continually come under the word as hearers and learners. The Christian life is a life of learning Christ a life of learning the gospel, a life of hearing and of submitting to the word of God. And then just as when we came to Christ, we definitively put on a new life. We, 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 we were made new and we began going in a new direction. So now every day we must do that. Every day we must respond to the grace of God with a recommitment to, to live our lives for his glory. Every day we say, God, you have, you have made me new and I want to live and walk in that newness by your grace. Three words that you can think of for those three instructions. Repentance, renewal, and response. Like, like what, what is the rhythm of the Christian life? Repentance, renewal, and response. Every day you're repenting of your sin. Every day you're being renewed in your minds by the gospel of Christ. And every day you're responding to that gospel afresh. Repentance, renewal, Response. This is how we came to Christ. This is how we live the Christian life. I want us to see a principle here 
that runs through this whole passage. This passage, if you haven't seen yet, has a lot to do with our minds, doesn't it? A lot to do with our hearts. You would expect it to be a lot to do with our actions, but that's not where Paul focuses. He focuses on what's going on in our minds and our hearts. And here's the principle that, that this passage teaches us. How we live is shaped by how we think. How we live is shaped by how we think, and then how we think is shaped by what we worship. How we live is shaped by how we think, and how we think is shaped by what we worship. Why can't the world think the same about things? Because they don't worship the same things. And so they don't live the same sort of lives, because they're going to suppress the truth of anything that gets in the way of what they have chosen to worship. The world doesn't worship God, so they suppress the truth of God, and that shapes the way they think, and that shapes the way they live. They end up living this futile thinking and this, this, this sinful living because they're refusing to worship God. They, they, they live in sin because they're ignorant spiritually. They're ignorant spiritually because they're hard-hearted and do not worship God. But what about us? What does it teach us today? Well, just, just think about it. If, if you want to walk, like just, and I'm assuming you do, because you're a believer, if you want to walk in a way that glorifies God, if you want your life to, to be for the glory of God, how will that happen? Well, it, it's, it needs to be by how you think. You need to have your mind renewed. And, and if you're going to receive the word of God, it needs to be based on who you're worshiping. How, how you think is shaped by how you worship, and this is ultimately going to come back to how you live. And so all this to just get to this practical point, I hope you see this. This is why it's so essential for us to have rhythms of personal worship and Bible study and prayer in our lives. Why? Because we need our hearts reoriented to the worship of God. We need our minds renewed by the word of God if we're going to live lives that glorify God. We need it. We need hearts shaped by the worship of God, minds renewed by the word of God if we want lives set up for the glory of God. And so I want to call you this morning to either begin or recommit or just continue in those patterns of personal worship and Bible study and prayer. These things will shape your heart and your mind, and your life. That's how we will walk the way that God calls us to walk, church. Well, we began by talking about how the church should relate to the world, how we've been sent into the world to be the light of the world. We are, we are like Christ, who is a man for others. We are, we, are the world in the, we are the church in the world, and we are here for the world. We've seen that we cannot be an effective light if we walk the way the world walks. We, can't, we need to walk separately. We need to walk differently if we're going to actually be a light in this world. We've seen how to walk instead as new creations, putting off our old self, being renewed, putting on the new self, pursuing Christ. To close today, here's what I want to ask. I want to ask you this. What should we expect from the world if we live like this? If we apply God's word today to our lives, what should we expect from the world? There's two things we should expect, church. We should expect, first, opposition. We should expect opposition. If we walk like Jesus walked, we will face what Jesus faced in this world. We should not be so eager for the world's approval. If we are eager for the world's approval, we're, we're, we're missing something. Because Jesus said, the world hated me, and it's going to hate you also. If we are walking as Christ walked, we will face opposition. We will face persecution. We will face hatred in this world. And we just need to be ready for that. And expect it. And don't be surprised when the world responds to your life as a follower of Christ with opposition. 
with antagonism, with hostility. Don't be surprised by that. Rejoice in that. Because it shows you're following Christ. Now, we, we don't want to be opposed for things that aren't Christ-like. But if we're following Christ, walking as he walked, expect opposition from this world. But church, also, we should not just expect opposition. We should expect attraction. We should expect that the world, not the whole world, not by and large, not everybody, but people in the world will be drawn to Christ through a life that is a light. Jesus said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So yes, there will be opposition. Yes, the world will hate you. Yes, the world will persecute you. The world will be hostile. But some in the world, God's people in the world who are still lost will see your light and they will be drawn to the light of your life and you have an opportunity to give the hope of the gospel that we sang about earlier. And God will be glorified through that life. This is our calling in this world. This is our calling right now. As the world, as we said, is just in utter turmoil and decay. We are here in this world to serve the world, be lights of the world, but we must be different from the world. If we are, we will expect opposition, but we will also expect that God will draw some to himself. And that is our hope, and that is our prayer. And so let's pray now and ask the Lord to help us walk this out together, church.